0: Hello, Darklings, and welcome to Once Upon a Terror. I'm your host, Adelina Hill, and boy do I have a very special episode for you today. I'm going to be reading an excerpt from a horror novel that I just finished this week. It's called Tender is the Flesh by Augustina Vesterica, and it's a book essentially about legalized cannibalism, and I think I'm going to be doing this every week. Um, reading a short story or an excerpt of a horror novel that I finished. I'm a very fast reader, so it won't be very hard to do this. Um, And as you all know, I get my stories uh, that I read on the podcast from Reddit users because I think there are a lot of creepy stories on the internet, and um, why not? So let's get into our first story or excerpt. Of the night called Tender is the Flesh. So here's the first chapter of that book. Once upon a time. flesh carcass cut in half stunner slaughter line spray wash these words appear in his head and strike him destroy him but they're not just words they're the blood the dense smell the auto motion the absence of thought they burst in on the night catch him off guard when he wakes his body is covered in a film of sweat because he knows that what awaits is another day of slaughtering humans. No one calls them that, he thinks, as he lights a cigarette. He doesn't call them that when he has to explain the meat cycle to a new employee. They could arrest him for it, even send him to the Municipal Slaughterhouse and process him. Assassinate him would be the correct term. But it can't be used. While he removes his soaked shirt, he tries to clear the persistent idea that this is what they are. Humans bred as animals for consumption, He goes to the refrigerator and pours himself cold water. He drinks it slowly. His brain warns him that there are words that cover up the world. There are words that are convenient, hygienic, legal. He opens the window. The heat is suffocating. He stands there smoking and breathes the still night air. With cows and pigs, it was easy. It was a trait he learned at the Cypress, the meat processing plant he'd inherited from his father. True, the screams of a pig being skinned could petrify you. But hearing protectors were used and eventually it became just one more sound. Now he's the boss's right-hand man. He has to monitor and train the new employees. Teaching to kill is worse than killing. He sticks his head out the window. Breathes the thick air. It burns. He wishes he could anesthetize himself and live without feeling anything. Act automatically. Observe, breathe, and nothing more. See everything, understand, and not talk. But the memories are there. They remain with him. Most people have normalized what the media insist on calling the quote-unquote transition. But he hasn't because he knows that the transition is a word that doesn't convey how quick and ruthless the process was. One word to sum up and classify the unfathomable. An empty word. Change. Transformation. Shift. Shift. Synonyms that appear to mean the same thing, though the choice of one over the other speaks to a distinct view of the world. They've all normalized cannibalism, he thinks. Cannibalism, another word that that could cause him major problems. He remembers when they announced the existence of GGB, the mass hysteria, the suicides, the fear. After GGB, animals could no longer be eaten because they had been infected by a virus that was fatal to humans. That was the official line. The words carry the weight necessary to mold us. To suppress all questioning, he thinks. Barefoot, he walks through the house. After GGB, the world changed definitely. They tried vaccines, antidotes, but the viruses resisted and mutated. He remembers articles that spoke of the revenge of the vegans. Other about acts of violence against animals. Doctors on television explaining what to do about the lack of protein. Journalists confirming that there wasn't yet a cure for the animal virus. He sighs and lights another cigarette. He's alone. His wife has gone to live with her mother. It's not that he still misses her, but there's an emptiness in the house that keeps him awake, that troubles him. He takes a book off the shelf. No longer tired, he turns on the light to read, then turns it off. He touches a scar on his hand. The incident happened a long time ago, and it doesn't hurt any more. It was a pig. He was very young, just starting out, and hadn't known the meat needed to be respected until the meat bit him and almost took his hand off. The foreman and the others couldn't stop laughing. You've been baptized, they said. His father didn't say anything. After that bite, they stopped seeing him as the boss's son and he became one of the team. But neither the team nor the Cypress Processing Plant exist now, he thinks. He picks up his phone. There are three missed calls from his mother-in-law, none from his wife. Unable to bear the heat, he decides to shower. He turns on the tap and sticks his head under the cold water. He wants to erase the distant images, the memories that persist. The piles of cat and dogs burned alive. A scratch meant death. The smell of burnt meat lingered for weeks. He remembers the groups in yellow protective suits that scoured the neighborhoods at night, killing and burning every animal that crossed their paths. The cold water falls on his back. He sits down on the floor of the shower and slowly shakes his head. But he can't stop remembering. Groups of people have started killing others and eating them in secret. The press documented a case of two unemployed Bolivians who had been attacked, dismembered, and barbecued by a group of neighbors. When he reads the news, he shuddered. It was the first public scandal of its kind and instilled the idea in the society that in the end, meat is meat. It doesn't matter where it's from. He tilts his head up to the waterfalls on his face. When he wants, for it's the drop to wipe his mind blank. But he knows the memories are there. They always will be. In some countries, immigrants began to disappear in large numbers. Immigrants, the marginalized, the poor. They were persecuted and eventually slaughtered. Legalization occurred when the governments gave in to pressure from a big money industry that had come to a halt. They adapted the processing plants and regulations. Not long after, they began to breed people as animals to supply the massive demand for meat. He gets out of the shower and barely dries himself off. In the mirror, he sees there are bags under his eyes. He believes in a theory that some people have tried to talk about, but those who have done so publicly have been silenced. The most eminent zoologist whose articles claim the virus was a lie had an opportune accident. He thinks it was all staged to reduce overpopulation. For as long as he can recall, there has been talk of the scarcity of resources. He remembers the riots in the country like China, where people killed each other as a result of overcrowding, though none of the media outlets reported the news from that angle. The person who said the world was going to explode was his father. This planet is going to burst at any minute. You'll see, son. It's either going to be blown to bits, or all of us are going to die from some plague. Look at what's happening in China. They've already started killing themselves because there are so many people There's no room for them all. And here, there's still room. But we're running out of water, food, and air. Everything's going to hell. He looked at his father almost with pity because he thought he was just an old man rambling on. But now he knows his father has been right. The purchase resulted in other benefits. The population and poverty had been reduced, and there was meat. Prices were high, but the market was growing at an accelerated rate. There were massive protests. Hunger strikes. Complaints filed by human rights organizations and at the same time, articles, research, and news stories had an impact on public opinion. Professors and researchers at prestigious universities claimed that animal protein was necessary to live. Doctors confirmed that plant protein didn't contain all the essential amino acids. Experts assured that methane emissions from cattle had been reduced, but malnutrition was one on the rise. Magazines published articles on the dark side of vegetables. The center of protest began to dis- burst, and the media went on reporting cases of people they said had died of the animal virus. The heat continues to suffocate him. He walks to the porch naked, the air is still. He lies down in the hammock and tries to sleep. A commercial plays again and again in his mind. A woman who's beautiful but dressed conservatively is putting dinner on the table for her three children and husband. She looks at the camera and says, I serve my family special food. It's meat, like I've always served." but tastier. The whole family smiles and eats their dinner. The government, his government, decided to rebrand the product. They gave human meat the name special meat instead of just meat. Now they're special tenderloin, special cutlets, special kidneys. He doesn't call it special meat. He uses technical words to refer to what a human but will never be a person, to what is always a product to the number of head to be processed, to the lot waiting in the unloading yard, to the slaughter line that must run in a constant and orderly manner, to the excrement that needs to be sold for manure, to the awful sector. No one can call them humans because that would mean giving them an identity. They call them product or meat or food, except for him. He would prefer not to have to call them by any name." Want to hear more? I will leave a link to the book in the show notes. I thought it was a truly, truly creepy horror novel, and I was not expecting the ending, and I'm not going to spoil that for you. So, I have two other stories for you tonight that I'm going to read to you, so let's get into that. Warning. The upcoming story is very descriptive. Listener's discretion is advised. Weird bumps and blisters started to grow on my friend's skin, and I think it's spreading to other people. By Reddit user Edimansius. Last week, my friend Alex started to exhibit symptoms of, well, let's call it an unusual skin condition. On Monday, during our econ lecture, he complained about small bumps and blisters forming on his back. I brushed it off and reminded him that changing one's bed sheets every six months, along with an irregular hygiene schedule, the man smelled like he needed a shower then and there, could do that to a college frat boy. Ignoring my stab, as if he barely recognized it, his attention focused on something else entirely. He said the bumps fell and looked a bit like chicken pox. Have you ever had chicken pox? I asked him, as childhood memories of small red prickly points bedazzled me, and my siblings, skin blustered, into my mind. Picturing an adult having chicken pox felt out of place, the word itself so closely tied to our childhood, like a grown man crying as their ice cream fell on the floor. Of course I've had chicken pox, dumbass, Alex replied. Why else would I compare this shit to chicken pox? Well, maybe it's just some advanced form of herpes then. You know, starting from your balls, then bumps start to spread into other continents like Columbus in search of India, traversing through the horrid canal of your taint and treacherous seas of your ass crack until they've reached their America. Your lanky, sweaty back. Alex was obviously annoyed at me, but couldn't help but chortle out a laugh through gritted teeth. Super herpes, he replied a minute later, amused at the phrase he'd concocted. The next time I heard from Alex was on a Wednesday. He texted me that he'd ditched class that morning to go to see a doctor. He wasn't the type of guy to visit any medical professionals, let alone a doctor. Once he'd broken two of his fingers playing basketball, and he'd just taped them up for a month and waited for the bones to heal. Granted, both of fingers did heal, but once they cocooned out of his homemade cast, materials being toilet paper and duct tape, they pointed in different directions, the bones having healed in a curved pattern. When he got sick, he half-acidly cite research concerning superbacteria, which would, according to him, ransack humanity if he kept prescribing antibiotics for everything for common flus to random pain. And of course, he was correct. I'll bet also not. But that was Alex for you. In one swift sentence, he could go from well-informed and dignified university student to a baboon flinging shit at the wall. So, if Alex was going to a doctor, he'd have to be really scared. I wished him luck and reminded him that super herpes probably wasn't a real thing, hoping to lighten the mood a bit. On Friday, I hung out with him during lunch. We'd made plans before, after he said everything went okay at the doctor's. As I carried my meal, a slice of pizza and a nondescript sweet bun, on a wobbly and twisted plastic platter, I spotted Alex sitting alone at a big round metal table, the ones that were made for six or more people. His hands were under the table and a hoodie, the same one he always wore and by which I recognized him. "'veiled his face as he slumped forward on his chair. "'The lunch hall was packed, "'but it seemed like no one dared to sit next to him. "'As I approached the table, I realized why. "'Alex looked half-dead, his skin pale, "'and his posture constantly trying to nestle his body "'towards a beetle position. "'Although the baggy hoodie gave his torso a Michelin man look, "'his arms and back made contact with the thick fabric, "'and those parts were bumpy.' like he'd stuffed rocks of various sizes under the sleeves and backside. Some of those rocks seemed to pulsate, moving independently of him. "'Hey, Alex,' I uttered unsurely, my voice immediately unveiling the concern I felt. Alex looked up and smiled, still keeping his hood on. His face was ravaged by blisters and bumps, which is when I realized what the rocks under his sleeves and back were. He smiled half-heartedly, And as his face moved, so did the clusters of red blisters, some caught into fluorescent light and shining as if coated by sugar. Super herpes? More like super acne, I thought. Immediately annoyed at myself for making a joke, even if it was only to myself. Hey man, so, uh, uh, super herpes seems to be real, he said. And I'm a real swamp thing now, I guess. I sat down opposite of him, noticing that on his platter, he only had a bottle of water and a half-eaten apple. He looked like he needed about seventeen Big Macs and five chocolate milkshakes. Holy shit, dude, are you okay? What did the doctor say? I asked. Well, they don't really know what it is, Alex replied. He took a pause before continuing, his face forming a slight frown. I thought I saw pus leaking down from his neck. I mean, they don't know what it is, but they said they shouldn't. it shouldn't be too harmful. The spots started to get really itchy, like something was tickling the insides of my skin. The doctor prescribed this ointment that I need to lather all over the spots. That was fine until I got more and more of them. I woke up like tw- with 20 new spots every day. And yes, you perv, I may or may not be lathered in stuff right now, like a lubed up dildo. I did always think you held a slight resemblance to a dick, I replied, although the mood immediately rejected the joking atmosphere, even if Alex feigned a smirk. Have you gone back to the doctor, though? That doesn't seem normal, man. Alex gave a long sigh and burrowed his elbow on the table. The doc says there really isn't much to do right now unless I come up with a fever or other symptoms relating to an infection or something. I should just try to rest and keep monitoring the situation. Sounds like bullshit, my words clocking Alex on the chin and grabbing his attention. I'm sorry to say this, but you look like shit. You need to go back there and not leave until they help you out. That's not normal. Even if I wanted to, they won't see me until Monday. They're only open for emergencies for the weekend. This is an emergency, I said. Not according to them, it's not. The frown started taking on traits of frustration. Fine, go to a private clinic then, I insisted. With what money? "'You know I'm broke,' Alex argued and lifted his arms as if to show all the money he did not have. "'Fuck. Man, okay, fine, but you promised to go first thing on Monday. "'And if it gets worse, just go to the ER anyway. "'Okay, fine, you're right. I'll book the appointment today, okay?' Alex didn't fight me on the subject further. I guess my reaction upon seeing his face was enough confirmation needed for him to believe the situation was serious. After I was done with my lunch— and he had nibbled on another quarter of his apple, we left for our respective dorms. I insisted that he text me for anything he might need, and to eat some real food and rest for the weekend. He nodded in agreement and gave me a sincere thanks. As Monday rolled around, I hadn't heard a peep from Alex. He didn't show up for our econ, and I didn't see him at lunch either. After lunch, I texted him, hey, how'd the doctor go? No answer. Later, as I checked again if he replied, I noticed he hadn't even read the text. The check mark under my message still grayed out. After my final lecture of the day ended, I decided to trek up to his dorm and see if he was in this room. Genuine concern gritted my facial muscles in an angry frown as I walked across campus to the large brick building. Alex was sloppy regarding timetables, responsibilities, and other adulting activities. But even for a frat boy, this type of communication breakdown was concerning. As I entered the building and started to climb up the stairs towards the third floor, true concern gripped me, and I readied myself to call an ambulance. I'd never called one before, but for some reason I felt like tonight I needed to. At best, I had gotten better and celebrated by drinking himself dumb. At worst, I thought I'd find him drenched in sweat, running a high fever, and him mumbling something about super bacteria. I couldn't picture any ending at that moment, and I readied myself for the worst. I knocked at his door, winding up the long stairs. No answer. I put my ear up to the door and listened. I could hear someone talking in the neighborhood room, indicating by a distinct muffling of the sound, which was present in all dorms. But Alex's room was dead quiet. Hey, Alex, it's me. You in there? I asked as I knocked on the door for a second time. After another pause, I thought, fuck it, I guess I'll just break it in. Although the university scalped each student from hundreds of thousands of dollars. Daughter- Dollars, they didn't allocate much of their funding towards maintaining their buildings. The dorm sported a lot of 80s flair in the form of wallpaper, furniture, and most importantly, doors and door locks. Years and years ago, someone had figured out that lifting the door up slightly from the handle and then yanking it left in a quick motion would sometimes open the lock mechanism enough so that a mere push would finalize the act and unlock the door. The secret wasn't particularly well kept but it didn't seem like anyone was abusing the trick either. Checking the hallway for other students. None seemed, none heard in their rooms. I lifted the door from its hinges and pushed the handle to the left. Click. I slowly gave the door a push. The lock system crackled as if a phantom key had just been turned inside it. The door opened and I quickly stepped inside, victorious of the shitty 80s lock mechanism. The room was dark, the only illumination coming from the bedside lamp. I had to stand and wait for a few seconds as my eyes adjusted to the new level of lighting. I didn't dare take a blind step and stumble on laundry or beer cans, which usually resided in randomized piles across Alex's floor. My eyes relaxing in the brooding, inky light of the room. I saw a dark figure laying in the bed. Alex, is that you? I asked, eyeing the bed. The thing did not respond. I walked closer, my hand scanning the wall for the overhead light switch. Alex, buddy, is that you? My fingers touched a plastic edge, quickly finding the flaccid switch in the middle of it. I flicked it upwards, the uncovered lamp above immediately burning my eyes. The soft lighting betrayed my harsh eyes, sending a pressure from the front of my skull. I blinked a few times to regard my vision and focused on the figure once more. It was definitely Alex, laying on his back with his arms tucked in and legs outstretched, but something was different. Once I realized what he'd become, that this wasn't the Alex I'd last seen, a pit was produced in my stomach, and I wanted to vomit out everything i ever eaten, just to clear and purify the insides of my body. His skin no longer had blisters and bumps. Instead, each under-the-skin bulb had blossomed into thick tufts of black hair that grew outward from the inside of his body. The hair protruded upward in barbarous, curly strands, the texture reminding me of the hair that emerges during puberty. Thick and dark. Besides each spot, the former blistered skin had been ripped apart and left to hang beside the hair. Like the spots had exploded and left a crater into the skin itself. It looked at the tens, hundreds of the hairy cap's fresh pus and blood oozing from some. Others having thick scabs and coarse strips of dried human paint. It wasn't until that point that I realized Alex was completely naked besides the patchwork of hair upon his body. I noticed that his fingernails were coarse and caked with dead skin and blood. Had he scratched them until they popped, I thought, or had they popped regardless, him scratching himself raw while his pulpy skin popped like a bag of popcorn, handfuls of hair shooting up like a through his rice paper skin. I shuddered through at the thought as my body started to itch uncontrollably and hard to reach places. My shock was interrupted when Alex gasped loudly, his body jolting awake. Alex, Alex, dude, are you okay? What the fuck happened here? I yelled as I closed the gap between me and the bed, nearly stumbling on a dirty sweater left on the floor. Coming in closer and looking at his face from above, I saw his eyes, which were crowded by hair bulbs like the manicured brush surrounding the science building. Hey man, it's me, I said, trying to seem relaxed. Alex didn't respond. His eyes, both milky and bloodshot, stared into mine, begging for help. He didn't move, but instead shook in a slow motion, like the way someone with early stages Parkinson's might hold a spoon. Except instead of just a hand, it was his whole body. Looking deeper into his eyes, I noticed that the small strand of hair had sewn his eyelids into an open position. I saw him try to blink, the reaction twitching the muscles around his face slightly, but the eyelids wouldn't come down. Alex was unable to blink. The ambulance took him to the hospital. I tried to give them what was wrong to him, to which they gave no reply. I was promptly pushed out of his dorm, and soon I was back in my own room sitting on my bed. The worry and fear started to release, the tears welled up in my eyes. Holy shit, what the fuck, was all I could think about as Alex's unblinking eyes meandered in my mind. A teardrop descended onto my left arm, which I swiped off with the other hand. When I did this, I noticed a bump on my skin, and the fear and worry I had for Alex made my way for sheer panic. I looked at the bump, the size of an edamame bean, poked with poked it with my finger and tried to see if there was hair sticking out of it. How hadn't I noticed this before? Was it there before? The panic started to intensify. My throat clenched up, and a vague need to get out started to overtake my body. I jumped up and made my way to a small dresser I kept knickknacks in. I rifled through drawers, opening and closing them violently as I rummaged and threw old notebooks and dried up pens across the floor. The bottom drawer produced what I had been looking at for an X-Acto knife that I had bought mistakenly when I was supposed to buy a regular box cutter instead. I sat back down on the bed and steadied my left arm as best I could on my lap. Using my right hand, I plugged the tip of the knife into the bump, dragging it across a small half-globe, making a small incision into the skin. The adrenaline kept the pain, receptors vacant, and I only felt a slight pinch and a small stream of blood formed around the cut. I stretched the skin with my fingers to open up the incision. Inside, under a thin veil of ooze, was a small ball of dark hair, wet from blood and clear pus. I gasped and quickly clenched my jaw and flexed my muscles as a single thought remained in my mind, consuming all others. Get it out. I plunged my index finger and thumb inside the hole and grabbed the tuft firmly. As I tugged, I could feel hairs embedded deep into my skin and bones beginning to pull from tight crevices inside my arm. The arm twitched oddly, as if the hairs being pulled flexed and relaxed certain muscles inside it, like a ventriloquist controlling the puppet. The pain was immense, like pulling out a mixture of splinters and strands of steel wool jammed under my fingernail. The ball of hair finally released itself. I looked at it pointing towards the skylight and saw that the ball connected to a tail of long, hair-thin strands, similar to the rest of the hairs. It looked like a dark, mucousy jellyfish, or like a hairball covered in saliva after a cat has it puked out. I threw the thing in the trash and tried to forget about it. The thought of those thin threads burrowing inside my arm made me feel nauseous and weak. Did I get the bumps from Alex? If so, where did he get them from? And it's not like me and Alex are intimate, so how did it spread? I have a ton of questions and zero answers. I'll try to see Alex soon and maybe ask around if other people on campus have gotten weird bumps or blisters. Let me know if any of you have experiences like this. Our last tale of the night is called If Missing Livestock Returns, Kill It Immediately by Catfish Block Party. When I was 23, I had a security gig at a dairy farm outside of Delphos, Ohio. It was a modest place, only holding a few dozen cows at any given time. My then-co-worker, a 34-year-old recovering meth addict named Corey, had just been fired for letting a cow go missing on his watch. A fireable offense in every sense of the word. For starters, Corey was insane. By the time I'd met him, drug-induced psychosis had rendered him virtually schizophrenic. On long nights spent with him during my training period, he'd tell me about CIA agents that were out to get him. He was convinced that they were broadcasting thoughts into his head via electromagnet waves. And that they would stop at nothing to ruin his life more than once i'd catch him glancing over his shoulder or peeking out of windows with a dumb look on his face hoping to catch a glimpse of whoever was following him this is the type of person that Corey was each of our cows had an ear tag labeled with a number at 8 pm they were each to be guided into their own respective stalls and locked in for the night padlocks became the norm after the incident with local kids a few years earlier. In the mornings, we'd have to carry around a clipboard containing each look, combination, and individually release each one. It made for an annoying way to start the day, but the cows were a hell of a lot more secure that way. That's what made Corey's story so unbelievable. He had claimed that the previous night, cow number 29 had been locked away in her stall along with the others. He told us that the only thing out of the ordinary that night was the obnoxious bat stuck in the rafters that he planted to deal with in the morning. In order for his claim to be true, an intruder would have had to unlock the barn with a set of keys, unlock 29 stalls with the correct combination, then reset both of the locks and leave undetected. Either that, or they picked up a 1,600-pound animal and leapt through a window. Considering Corey's nasty habit of abandoning his duties in which to twitch and hallucinate in the corner, a small part of me believed that some two-bit thief might have been able to get it over onto him. My boss, however, a fifty-year-old hothead, concluded that Corey must have been involved with the Calista's appearance and promptly kicked him in the curb. With nobody else to fix his, fill his position, my boss had offered to pay me extra for each of his duties that I could complete until we received a new hire. Naturally, I agreed, but I'd be heading back to school in a few weeks and I needed all the money I could get. My first night back at work began normally. Since I'd now been doing the work of two security guards, I arrived early to get a head start on Corey's checklist. I started by sweeping out the barn, farmheads trying to keep the TMR in a long pile just in front of the stall doors so the cows could eat throughout the night, But that shit practically painted on the floor by the time I got there. Midnight through. I noticed something reflective in the corner of the barn. I lazily swept a loose bit of corn and hay over it to investigate. On the floor before me was a neon yellow ear tag. I picked it up to examine it. 29. Next to 29's ear tag was the skeletal remains of a bat. I guessed that they were just another thing Corey never got around to dealing with. I swept up the bones along with the rest of the barn. By the time I was finished, it was already 8 p.m. I made my way out to the fields and then... One at a time, I guided each cow to its assigned stall. I got through about ten or so before I noticed something strange. Across the field, about fifty meters away from the others, was a lone cow. It faced away from me, seemingly transfixed on a nearby cornfield. Seeing a cow on its own is nothing strange in and of itself. They need personal space the same way as people do. What was strange was the way that her tail stuck straight out from behind her, unwavering. She stood as if she were afraid to slip, with her feet planted far apart. Perhaps the strangest of all, her head appeared to be tilted at a 90-degree angle. I wasn't eager to tell my boss. They'd put down many sick cows before, but losing two in the matter of a week might have been enough to send him over the edge. I decided to save that cow for last as I continued to guide the rest of them in for the night. Being in charge of twice the amount of cows I was used to whack to. was time-consuming. It took me nearly an hour to round them up. By the time I had locked number 36 for the night, it was 9 o'clock. I should have been making my rounds by then, especially given the circumstances. I had just the last cow to deal with. While contemplating how long it was going to take me to unlock each cow in the morning, I realized something that made my blood run cold. The only stall left empty was number 29. I shuffled to the field. Surely enough, she was there. She hadn't moved an inch since I started the process of moving them. I approached her slowly. It was surreal seeing a creature frozen in such an odd position. As I came up to her, I could hear a definite but muffled chittering. It was unlike any noise I'd ever heard from a cow. What the fuck did you eat, I thought to myself. I whistled to the cow before approaching her to avoid startling her. On a dime, the chittering ceased. The cow left ear rose to face the sky and began to oscillate rhythmically like the periscope of a submarine. I could tell that moving this one would be a challenge. I rubbed her back in an attempt to soothe her. Bonding is a key when established any sort of relationship with an animal. I'd never interacted with 29 before, so we were unfamiliar with each other. Her skin felt bizarre, like clay with hide draped over it. I walked around to see her face. Her eyes were peeled open, darting around rapidly. Her mouth hung open and drooped to the side. I examined her left ear, searching for a place to reinsert her tag, but there was no piercing. I strapped a halter to 29's mouth and began to lead her. It was like trying to uproot a tree with a bike chain. Each tug I gave was fruitless. I began to put my weight into it, but still no luck. When I say no luck, I don't mean that 29 wouldn't follow me. I meant that her body showed zero sign of being affected by my body weight whatsoever. Cows are strong creatures, but they're not made of stone. I was perplexed. After 15 minutes of this, I decided that it was useless to continue on. With the clock ever ticking... I could no longer afford to neglect my rounds. I began to walk to the security post to collect my flashlight and get on with the night. As I pondered my life choices while dancing my way through a minefield of cow patties, I heard a slow trotting. I looked behind me to see that the cow had in fact moved. Twenty-nine was now facing me. Not so shy now, I wondered. I turned around and continued walking towards the gate. When I made it halfway through the field, I began to hear the trotting again. It was louder and much quicker this time. I smiled to myself. Wish I'd known to walk away sooner. Without turning to face the cow, I walked into the barn and began fumbling with 29's padlock. Three left, 32 right, 23 left. As the lock clicked open, I heard the floorboards behind me creak. A slow vocal droning turned to a sickly gurgle. I hope to God whatever you've got isn't contagious, I said before spinning around. All the color drained from my face as I was greeted with the sight of an eight-foot-tall bee standing before me on its hind legs. Twenty-nine's head was cocked sideways with one eye focusing on me. Its pupil seemed to grow and shrink rapidly as it scanned over my body. Its lower jaw slowly moved up and down as it began to vocalize again. It began to creep towards me. Its front leg kicked wildly as it attempted to keep balance, all the while making the same noise. i yi, yi. I began to feel lightheaded. I grabbed Twenty-nine's padlock and made a brick for the door. The cow began to rapidly stomp behind me. I began to hyperventilate as I sprinted. The rest of the cows were spooked. Shaking and jumping around wildly, I slammed the door shut and clasped the padlock. A sickening boom shook the entire wall of the barn as 29 began to claw at the door. I... I... The beast croaked before chittering once more. I backed away from the door slowly, its wooden frame bending and contorting at the sheer force behind it. Without any other warning, I turned my back to the barn and ran to my car as 29 began wailing and pounding. I never ended up making any rounds that night. Instead, I started my car and left that fucking place in the rearview mirror. I didn't tell my boss. In fact, I deliberately avoided several of the phone calls because I had nothing to say. I figured it'd be best if I quit the easy way. There are certain things in life that back you into corners. Silence forces your hand, you know. That's why I'm writing this now. Of course, I still wanted my money. A few weeks later, just before making my two-hour commute back to college, I stopped by the farm to pick up my final check. My boss wasn't in his office on Tuesdays, so I took advantage of the situation and granted myself access with the key that I had seen him not so stealthily kick under the rug once or twice. After snagging my check and a few jolly ranchers, I got into my car and slowly began to drive away. Out of the corner of my eye, a young farmhand standing in the grazing field caught my attention. Hey, kid, I shouted. Stay away from the night shift. But he didn't answer me. Not even look at me. He just continued to stare at the pile of bones before him. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Once Upon a Terror. If you have any submissions, email them to onceuponaterror at outlook dot com. Be sure to follow the podcast at Spotify on here. That's all I have for you tonight, lovelies. Good night.